I ask you to turn with me in your copies of the Scripture to 2 Samuel chapter 18. Including today's chapter, we have seven more chapters in conclusion of our study through the life of David, through the books of Samuel. We're returning there after having had a a hiatus from this study. I'll be reading the entire chapter. It's lengthy. Uh, I hope that's not indicative of the sermon. (laughs) Although uh, the battery for my, my microphone has been charged to its fullest. Hear once again the very words of God from 2 Samuel 18. And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered, You shall not go out, for if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth ten thousand of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. Then the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. So the people went out and into the field of battle against Israel, and the, people, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown, there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth. And the mule which was under him went on. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, You just saw him? And why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Beware, lest any one touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have set yourself against me. Then Joab said, I cannot linger with you. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom and struck and killed him. So Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. 
Then all Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up a pillar for himself, which is the king's which is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and to this day it is called Absalom's monument. Then Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, You shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go, tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So Joab said, Why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? But whatever happens, he said, Let me run. So he said to him, Run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate, to the wall, lifted his eyes and looked, and there was a man running alone. Then the watchman cried out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, There's another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. So Ahimaaz called out and said to the king, All is well. Then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. The king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it is about. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you do, to do harm be like that young man. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we are so far from these events that happened a, a millennia before the coming of our Savior. And our minds and our understanding are almost as far from that time. Yet your Spirit has given these words to us to teach us that we might understand your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. Father, enliven our minds to understand this passage, to do justice to these details that are given to us. 
that it might goad us to love and good works, that it might goad us to righteousness in the midst of sin and misery, that we would be called the sons of God, and that the love that we show toward one another would be a witness of the love Your Son, Jesus Christ, has poured out upon us. May the world know that we love You because You first loved us. And as we see this in the life of David, Lord, help us to emulate righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Help us to be conformed to His image. And we ask this in His name and for His sake. Amen. We had begun a study through the life of David and have progressed through all of 1 Samuel and now the 18th chapter of 2 Samuel. And following this week, we will have six more chapters to complete in the series. I need to summarize where we are. It's been so many weeks, so let me do that briefly. You may recall that David was the king over Israel, but was unseated in a coup d'etat by his son Absalom. David has fled Jerusalem, has crossed the Jordan River to encamp at Mahanaim. That name means God's camp. It was given that name by the patriarch Jacob in Genesis 32.2. This was also the place Ishbosheth and Abner had settled when Ishbosheth assumed the kingship of Israel from his deceased father Saul in opposition to David. Now there's an irony here. David has fled from an illegitimate king in Israel, his son Absalom, to take up residence in a place where Ishbosheth, another illegitimate king of Israel, had ruled in defiance of David. It almost seems that David cannot escape his enemies or their dwelling places. Our God has a way of emphasizing his sovereignty in the midst of justice, and I believe that's part of the emphasis here. Though David is God's anointed, David's kingship is interrupted by the wicked. God is not mocked. God overthrows the wicked in due time. And as we shall see, God's mighty hand and outstretched arm protects and defends His chosen one once again in the passage before us today. God is not slack concerning His promises, the Scriptures teach us. The Scriptures tell us that He raises up the humble, and he crushes the arrogant and wicked. Both Ishbosheth and Absalom, though kings in Israel for a short time, are lost to history, while the throne of David remains forever. God does indeed draw straight with crooked lines. And here are some of those crooked lines before us. Well, back to our study. David has been given some time to escape and regroup because of a cunning spy in the court of Absalom. David's spy is Hushai, the archite, who counseled Absalom to gather a large force to pursue David and kill David and his followers to solidify Absalom's kingship. Now you might think, well, wait a minute. He's telling Absalom to, to gather a large force to take out David? Well, yes, but there's, there's cunning behind that counsel. You might also remember there was another counselor at the time Hushai is giving this counsel. His name was Ahithophel. Ahithophel counseled Absalom to send him out with a small guerrilla force to seek out David and to assassinate him alone and to do it very quickly. 
when David had left Jerusalem. Absalom the king chose Hushai's counsel against Ahithophel's counsel. And yes, it's difficult to keep all these names straight as as I'm saying them. As soon as that counsel was taken by Absalom, Ahithophel, the one whose counsel was denied, immediately put his house in order and committed suicide. It's probably the case that Ahithophel understood that if his counsel was not taken, it would not go well for Absalom. I suspect that's what he believed. And if it didn't go well for Absalom, meaning Absalom would be dethroned, David put back on the throne, Ahithophel's life would be in jeopardy. Back to Hushai. Hushai knew that the time taken to muster a large army by Absalom to pursue David would give David the necessary time to choose a defensible position and muster an opposing force. This is exactly what David did, and this is where we re-enter the account of David's life into into the text today. By the way, there's one more important historical point that that might be helpful for us to consider. Though we're not sure how old David is during Absalom's disobedience, David is nearing the end of his life. David reigned as king over Israel for 40 years when he dies. We read this in 1 Kings chapter 2. And there we see the account of David's death. The commentator Matthew Henry places that event in 1015 B.C., and the account of Absalom's death in 1023 B.C. That puts the events of our text in the 32nd year of David's reign as king. He would reign only eight more years as king over Israel. Now, according to best estimates, David slays Goliath in 1060 A.D. and was anointed by Samuel five years early in 1065 A.D. Assuming David was 20 years old when he slew Goliath, that would make him 62 years of old, years of age at our text. 62 years of age. This may partially explain why his followers did not want him to participate in the battle with Absalom's forces in verses 3 and 4. David is not a young man. There are many lessons in our text, but time only permits us to consider a few. And I only want us to look at three. First, David is caught in a conundrum. Children, a conundrum is a, is a situation where two things are tugging at one's uh, person. Maybe their heartstrings or possibly a decision. Both are the case in David's situation here. The conundrum is this. His love for his son and the defiance his son has shown toward God's will. How do I deal with these things? His love for his son, and yet his son was very disobedient to the will of God. The second lesson, though sin leads to misery and death, God's will is always being worked out with grace and mercy. And then lastly, in the midst of tragedy and misery, how ought we live to live as faithful believers? in the midst of tragedy and misery. Well, let's deal with David's conundrum first. I had to pick a hard word in the midst of all these hard names. I'm not sure why I did that. 
David is living in the midst of God's judgment. Remember that. Remember what happened after he sinned with Bathsheba. Remember the, the, the confrontation that Nathan made with David. The story that he told about this uh, unfaithful man. And David responds with this great anger. Who is this man? He's ready to implement justice on behalf of God. And Nathan says, you're the man. Then Nathan talks about the curse that God places upon David and his household in the midst of that sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read these words, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. In other words, God is saying, your sin was done in darkness and in stealth, but when I do my work, I do it in the broad sunlight. Because God is all, all about light. And part of that light is going to shed, be shed upon our own sin and make that known to us. David is seeing his own household in disarray with his son defying the laws of God. When God said, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, it's happening right now, and David is seeing it. His son, his son has violated the seventh commandment with David's concubines. We saw that in previous chapters. And now is in direct defiance of the fifth commandment, honoring his parents as he ought, Absalom is. And he's pursuing violating the eighth commandment. He wants to take David's life unjustly. Brethren, that's murder. Furthermore, he's endeavoring to break... I'm sorry, he's violated the fifth and eighth commandments. He stole the throne from David. And now he wants to take his life, breaking the sixth commandment, and he's doing it without hesitation. There's nothing standing in his way. Absalom is headlong going into sin. He is full of rebellion. That's a warning to all of us, brethren. When we deal with, when we don't deal with sin in our lives, when we leave it to propagate itself, it begins to spiral downward. It takes us into a spiral that is heading toward death and destruction. That's what sin does to us. And if you think you're exempt from that, consider all of the examples from Scripture where faithful men spiraled downward into sin. Take a fresh look at Hebrews chapter 6, the first eight verses. That'll sober you up as well. Having tasted the good things of God and you leave those things, does, is God going to be your rescuer then? No, the Bible says. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now I have to give you that warning. That's part of our, our, the Word of God. David is seeing Absalom do the same thing Saul did. Spiraled downward until his own destruction was upon him. Now, brethren, David is still the anointed one of Israel in this passage. And he has a duty before God to end this rebellion against God. 
He may not be king in Jerusalem, but he is king of Israel. It may seem like Absalom is the king of Israel because he's usurped that authority, but he's no true king. That can only reside on the anointed of God. But David's conundrum is that he loves and he pities this rebellious son. Probably not unlike the, the, uh, the prodigal son's father who gives him his wealth and he leaves to squander it hoping upon hope that God will turn that child's heart back to faithfulness. And indeed it happened. And what does that father do? He pours out blessings upon that son. That's the kind of attitude I think David had in the midst of this. He saw the rebellion for what it was and where it was taking his son, but he pitied that son and wanted him to return to faith. I think this is evident in verse 5 when he instructs the generals to deal gently with Absalom for David's sake. All Israel is falling apart in civil war and David asserts from his own emotions the desire to preserve Absalom. Deal gently with my son when he sends his generals to war. Brethren, this is one of the most difficult circumstances a parent can encounter. The love we have for our children does not end when they turn to sin and rebellion. We know that. Yet, we have an obligation before God to act in righteousness. This was David's conundrum. It is not easy to do as the prophet Micah 6.8 instructs us. To do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly before God. Those things I remind us of often but it's not easy to do. Doing justice must be wedded with mercy in humility before God. Where we most often err is not doing the justice. And I think that's the temptation David's dealing with here. I believe David wanted to honor God in dealing with Absalom, but without his direct intervention, lesser men would take matters into their own hands as was the case with Joab. And this brings us to our second lesson. Sin and misery lead to death, but God's grace and mercy prevail even in the midst of sin and misery. God has recorded for us a most unusual circumstance in this battle. First, it is widely believed that Absalom's forces were many, many times that of David. After all, 20,000 men died and they were primarily those from Israel under the leadership of Absalom. Yet because of the terrain, David's armies are going to prevail. At a time when men are taking the lives of others, God is preserving David and his followers. Consider the statements in verses 6 and following. So the people went out onto the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. What a odd statement. That's hard for us to understand, isn't it? Well, those who had followed Absalom were overthrown, mostly by the very hand of God, 
for the woods devoured more that day than the sword devoured. How can this be? Were the trees of the wood like the ants in Tolkien's tales? Not at all. The geography of the land was that of steep ravines covered with terebinth trees. They were virtually impossible to maneuver through. It is likely that many fell to their deaths because of the terrain, these steep cliffs, these ravines, when they ran into the trees, where the trees broke as they tried to hold on to them, as they tried to maneuver through the the, uh, gorges. Rather, in God's hand of judgment is on the wickedness of Absalom and his, his followers. It's, this is evident. This is very much like the passage in Exodus 15 that we read earlier. The song where God opens up the, the waters, the people of Israel go through on dry land, and then as the, the Pharaoh and his armies tried to follow him, he closes the waters. God does direct judgment here like he did in the Exodus. God is fighting for David and his covenant people. Brethren, those who rise up against the anointed of God have only a window of time to repent before God's mighty hand rises to defend his anointed. Keep that in mind today. It was true in 1023 B.C. in the woods of Ephraim, and it's just as true today. God will rise up to protect his anointed. Remember also, brethren, that God's grace and mercy are most evident in the midst of judgment. Grace and mercy are most evident in the midst of judgment. How is it that unmerited favor can be seen without judgment? Think about it. How can mercy be seen without judgment. Isn't mercy the withholding of judgment? Judgment that's rightly due, that is poured out on some but not others? When God rises up to put down His enemies, He necessarily protects those who bear His name. To put down the enemies of God means to elevate those who carry the name of God. Now, we can't leave this point without considering the death of Absalom. It's an unusual death, is it not? While pursuing David to kill him, Absalom, with his beautiful locks of hair, we saw that in a few chapters before, I can see, I can envision in my mind's eye Absalom standing before the mirrors and wafting back his locks. Well, the very thing he takes pride in is going to bring about his demise. While pursuing David to kill him, Absalom, with his locks of beautiful hair, rides his mule under a terebinth tree and gets his head caught in the fork of a branch. Absalom is suspended between heaven and earth, the Bible says. He's suspended between heaven and earth. One commentator says of this circumstance that Absalom, being suspended between heaven and earth, is rejected by both heaven and earth. If there ever been a time for a man to repent, that time was when the man is helpless and Absalom is helpless, having been rejected by heaven and caught above the earth. He is completely helpless. 
Brethren, God is gracious and merciful to place us in circumstances where we cannot but help cry out to him. That is when we are to humble ourselves and plead for God's help. Men who are dead in their trespasses and sin are helpless to save themselves. Only God can save from such circumstances. And this picture of Absalom is that kind of helplessness. Absalom's only hope was in the Lord, yet there is no evidence he sought the help of the Lord. Now there's another great irony here in Absalom's death. The second great irony in the passage, I think. What does the Bible say of a man who hangs on a tree? Is he not a cursed man? Is that not a curse from the Old Covenant? To be hung on a tree? And Absalom was hung on a tree, suspended between heaven and earth, and would receive the wrath of men. After his death, he's put in a pit, and he's covered with stones. Do we know another man that hung on a tree, suspended between heaven and earth, taking the wrath of men, but not just the wrath of men, the wrath of God Himself? Who was buried in a stone covered his tomb, but that man was different. He was a true son of David. That stone was rolled away, and he rose again from the dead, that we might be justified in the sight of the living God. A false son of David, Absalom, had no heirs. Our passage makes that clear today. A monument was built for his name. My suspicions are that monument no longer exists. But what about the true son of David, Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead? We have been engrafted into Him. We are the sons and daughters of the living God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And our numbers one day will never be counted. They will be so large, the Bible tells us. That's the kind of son I want to follow. Not the son named Absalom, but the son named Jesus Christ. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't deal with David's demeanor when he learns of Absalom's death. David's demeanor throughout these events shows us the humanity of David. I had mentioned before, David's age was likely a reason for him being away from the battlefield. It's possible, had David been there, that he could have intervened for the life of Absalom. But he's back at the city when the battle's taking place in the woods of Ephraim. David's been on the run, but God's intervention is about to change that circumstance. The enemies of God are going to be thwarted, or have been thwarted by now, and David would be recognized as the legitimate anointed one of God on the throne of Israel. David was familiar with dealing with having to run from his enemies. He had to run from Saul. At times he fled the Canaanites and other pagan nations. 
David would stand firm, though, when it was necessary, and he and his men stood firm here, though outnumbered largely. They had someone on their side that was mightier than the armies of Israel. In verses 19 through 33, David is diligently found seeking news of the battle and the news of his son. When he sent his generals to war, he had given instructions that Absalom be dealt with gently. You remember that I emphasized that earlier. By this very command, David seemingly has an optimistic outlook on the outcome of the battle. If he says, deal gently with Absalom, he's assuming his forces are going to win. Is he not? His confidence is realized when he sees the messengers come with news of the victory. Yet Absalom is dead and David is overtaken with grief. Brethren, Solomon would later write, by the way, Solomon was the faithful heir to the throne, was he not? Anointed by God. Solomon would later write in Ecclesiastes, as we've been stu- the men have been studying, the ladies had finished the study in the spring, that there is a time for war, Ecclesiastes 3.8. Both Solomon and James, the author of the epistle in the New Testament, would also write that life is a vapor, meaning that it's short-lived. Solomon would add that controlling the events of life is like shepherding the wind, as we saw so many times going through the book of Ecclesiastes. Shepherding the wind. David is experiencing these very things. David is older. His life is nearing end. That vapor. But he's still trying to shepherd the wind. David is trying to shepherd warfare from afar. Deal gently with my son Absalom. Brethren, what should we expect in war? Isn't death the thing that we expect in war? Isn't that the very thing we expect? David has asked his generals to act gently in war. I'm not sure how this is to be done. What an odd thing to say. Go make war against my son, but deal gently with him. Brethren, God can preserve in time of war, for only He knows the numbers of the days of man. He can preserve life in warfare, but only He knows whose lives will be preserved and whose won't. Brethren, Solomon would also write, there is a time to mourn, Ecclesiastes 3.4. And David's demeanor changes from hopeful expectation to profound grief when he see these, sees these two men and gets their reports. His, respe- his rebellious son is dead, caught between heaven and earth, only to be swallowed by the gaping jaws of hell in death. David has every reason to be grieved. Only God can save, and God has not chosen to save Absalom. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. These are hard providences for us to understand. But His ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts. Is God unjust in these circumstances? I remember the response of R.C. Sproul when asked why bad things happen to good people. He would wonder, why has this bad thing happened to David? 
a man after God's own heart. R.C.'s response was profound. Sproul said, That has only happened once in history, in the history of mankind. And that man volunteered for it. Think about that. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's only happened once in history, and that man volunteered for it. Brethren, Jesus Christ was the only righteous man to have bad things happen to him, and he volunteered for those bad things. He came to seek and to save those who are lost, those who are lost in their trespasses and sins. David was told that because of his sin, the sword would not pass from his house, and that adversity would rise up in his household as well. God kept his word, did he not? God also promised to David that he would preserve his life during that adversity. That's in the same chapter in 2 Samuel 7. That God would do that is evidenced in this very chapter. This great battle took place and David still lives. Brethren, sin brings death. This is inescapable. And God brings salvation and this too is inescapable. we have to ask ourselves this question. Will we humble ourselves before God that He might lift us up as He did David, even in the midst of great turmoil? This is the lesson that we must ponder. I call to you now. Cast your cares upon the Lord Jesus Christ that He might lift you up because He cares for you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Let us pray together. Father in Heaven, we are confronted with this circumstance that David has found himself in. The conundrum between loving an unfaithful Son, and yet honoring You in all His ways. Father, even we suffer these same kinds of conundrums with temptation of sin in our own lives, sins that we've committed that still have consequences, family members who have lost their way, who backslidden, have turned from Your righteousness and embraced many sins. Children of the same kind. Friends having done the same. Father, we grieve as David grieved for Absalom. We grieve for our family members, our friends, those who embrace their sin more than they embrace the Son. Father, we don't know how You will draw straight with these crooked lines in our lives. But we know that You are sovereign and that we know that You will do all Your holy will to bring glory to Your Son 
that your kingdom will advance and the glory of the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And we rest in that. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes and ears of faith as we see things around us and hear things around us that seem to be so at odds with your will that you will bring down your enemies and you will elevate your anointed. Help us not to lose sight of that, but with thanksgiving in our hearts, trust you for it.